You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to be in 7 and 8 today. Uh, Pastor Jeremy preached chapter 6 last week where we were introduced to a guy named Noah. Uh, most of you probably at least know who Noah is. You've heard of him. Um, and, and we're going to talk today about the flood, the global flood that, that came upon the earth and Noah survived through the uh, ark and all the animals with him. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Next week we'll deal with chapter 9 where we see Noah get off of the ark, um, get off the boat and commit sin, um, even, even in spite of God's covenant with him. And, um, and, and we'll kind of continue the story on uh, through there, okay? So in uh, chapter 6, we see God's plan, and I love that Jeremy joked about how we, we make it like a, a fun kid story um, with all the zoo animals and giraffes sticking out of the top of the boat, but it's really a story of God's wrath, right? Um, it is a story of God, um, God punishing wickedness and sin. Um, he sends this catastrophic, death-bringing flood upon the whole world, and everyone dies except for eight people, Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And in chapter 7 through 8, we see the actual flood come, and we also see the gracious preservation of life. Um, in 7 verse 2, God says, Take with you, Noah, seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, seven pairs of birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. And so God's very gracious in preserving human life as well as preserving animal life to make sure these species continue. Um, if, you, if you're with our church, you know that I'm not an animal person and I like to poke fun at all you animal-loving people, right? And, um, and I just look at the flood and I'm like, this would have been a great chance to get rid of some really annoying you know, species of animal, like dogs, for example. That would have been a great chance to get rid of those. I know I got a lot of hate for that in the first service, too. Um, team Cat right here. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we have cats. They're arrogant and prideful like me. Um, so, uh, but, but God, God is, is not mean and cold-hearted like I am. God graciously spares all the species, right? And, um, and, and we see even, even just one um, one takeaway we can have from the flood itself is just God's grace in, in giving us animals. The, I mean, when you go to a zoo and get to enjoy seeing God's, um, God's artistic and beautiful creation in the animal kingdom, it's beautiful. And um, we see that preserved even in the great uh, punishment upon sin. Now, as we look at the flood, I, I want to deal with some of the more sciencey stuff in the beginning, and I'll, I'll finish the sermon with more theological stuff. But um, I'm not a scientist, so uh, forgive me for any scientific facts I get wrong. I did my best studying this week. But um, historically, it's super interesting, too, because historically, um, you see uh, in, in ancient history, throughout all uh, cultures and contexts and nations, there are over 200 legends that are written down with stories of a global flood. Um, there's a Hawaiian legend, just a couple of interesting ones. There's a Hawaiian legend of a man named Nunu. Um, got, the, got the beginning of his name right. Nunu uh, made a canoe with a house on it and filled it with as many animals as he could and survived a great flood of the islands. There's a Chinese legend of a guy named Fuhi. Um, and Fuhi, get this, had, three, had a wife and three sons, and his three sons had uh, wives, and, and the eight of them survived a global flood with every species of animal. You find these legends all over the world, and you even find them in cave drawings and, and ancient artwork and things like that, which I think uh, give, 
give credibility to the biblical account of a global flood. Now, textual critics of the Bible will make claims that the Bible borrowed stories from these other cultures and that Moses put this story that he had heard from other places in the world into the Bible. Well, that doesn't really bother me as a Christian. And and if you're a Christian, you're looking at the history of the flood, it shouldn't bother you either. Um, It really doesn't matter who told the story first, whether it was the Jews, whether it was Asians, whether it was Africans or Islanders. Um, All of these people telling the story at all um, give credit and, and validity to the commonality of this being a historical narrative. Um, ancient people believed this actually happened, and we should too because we have record of it. Furthermore, the earth itself validates it and tells the story of a global flood. The Grand Canyon is said to be created by water over millions of years. I, I, I personally am a young earth creationist, so I believe the earth is very young. Um, some of our pastors believe in an old earth, but regardless, you see um, things like canyons that are created by water. I believe a catastrophic flood could create those things quickly. The fossil record itself, um, I think, speaks to a global flood. Um, Fossils, if you don't know how they're formed, they're formed when water makes mud and covers up an animal before it has a chance to rot and decay or be eaten by another animal. Um, And we have fossils of land animals all over the world in very dry places. We also have water fossils existing in very high elevations on the tops of mountains. I think all of that lends itself to there being a global flood. Also in the geological record, there's literally a catastrophic line in the geographical record all over the world. Um, Many people will say this line is where an asteroid likely hit that took out the dinosaurs, it caused mass extinction. Um, I think an asteroid could have hit in the time of the flood. Um, I think all of these things uh, testify to the fact that there was some kind of big catastrophe that happened long ago on the earth. Genesis chapter 7 verse 11 tells us what that is. It says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Now, uh, so I want you to remember, it wasn't just rain that flooded the whole world. Um, Genesis 7 tells us the fountains of the deep were burst open. This means that water was coming from the earth itself, from the ground. Um, and this could have even been brought about by an asteroid or something like that that God hurled to the earth. God didn't need a big bang to create the universe. He didn't need a boat to save Noah. I want you to understand this is a supernatural event that's happening. Sometimes we scientifically try to explain how could a global flood scientifically be possible according to natural law. We're dealing with God who works outside of natural law. And so this is a supernatural event. God is causing something to happen here. And so we don't need to prove it all scientifically. And sometimes we try to do that and insert that into the Bible. We don't need to prove it all scientifically because we worship a guy who rose from the dead. That's against natural law, right? Um, and so we can, uh, we can believe and have faith in things that are supernatural. Now, again, though, Moses is not attempting to write a science book, but where God's word is, speaks of science, it is scientifically true. When it speaks of history, it is historically accurate. One of those things is that the flood was indeed a global flood. We see that in chapter 7, verse 17. It says, The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased, bore up the ark, And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heavens were covered. 
Um, I think there's a lot that happened in the catastrophic event of the flood that explain a lot of things that we see on the earth. If you understand the concept of Pangea, all the continents being together at one point, or at least closer together at one point, I think the uh, bursting forth of the fountains of the deep could explain how the continents separated, can explain how mountains formed, how canyons formed, how oceanic trenches formed. Um, All of these things make sense in light of a major global catastrophe. And the Bible tells us what that is. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, it tells us at the end of that catastrophe what happened. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Now, if Noah built a boat that big, right, and it just got stuck on a mountain somewhere, wouldn't we be able to find it? Wouldn't we be able to find like a petrified wood, pieces of the ark, something like that? Interestingly enough, there, there are a lot of people who think that the ark is visible uh, via satellite imaging on a mountain in Turkey. There is um, some kind of formation that looks about the same size of what the ark would have been. Personally, I don't think that's the actual ark um, because I've seen the price of lumber. And if Noah and his sons were smart at all, they took the ark apart and they built houses with it. Okay? On our building down the street, we're using all the lumber we took down in the rafters and using it to frame up what we're building inside the old theater. And so personally, I don't think we're going to find the ark. I don't think we need to find the ark. Um, I tend to think that, you know, gopher wood at Lowe's, is, it goes for high dollar, okay? Um, if you know what gopher wood is. I don't, but I've heard that it's, you know, it's this mysterious expensive wood. And so gopher wood would have been a hot commodity, and, um, and I think they probably disassembled it and built houses with it. But the science of this is interesting, But again, I think you're going to see this week in and week out as we go through Genesis, as we look at the science of it, as we look at the history of it, we can have fun with those things, talk about those things, and appreciate those things, but that's not Moses' point. So let me spend the rest of the sermon showing you what I think theologically, as Christians, we are to draw from this, that we're to take away from this. Four things I want you to see. I want you to see God's care in the midst of a catastrophe. I want you to see God's circumstance that he puts Noah and his family into. I want you to see God's command particularly that he gives to Noah, excuse me, when he gets off of the ark. And I want you to see God's covenant, God's promises that he makes with Noah. Now, in preaching Genesis, what we're trying to do is we're trying to apply the theological concepts that we see in the first book of the Bible. And in the flood, what we see is God's wrath against sin, um, God's punishment of sin, which is a very real theological concept that all of us need to grasp that God is angered by sin, and that God rightly and justly punishes sin. Also, we see God's gracious salvation of the elect. We see God graciously um, seeing Noah and giving Noah faith to believe, and then Noah in turn responding to God's grace and acting in righteousness. In Genesis 6-8, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word sometimes is translated, Noah found grace in God's eyes. This free act of grace led to his salvation. In chapter 7, verse 1, the Lord says to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You see, God's care for us is him imputing righteousness to us, uh, faith to us, that we don't earn salvation in and of ourselves. Uh, If you miss everything else about Noah's story, understand this, that he was not saved by being a good carpenter. He was saved because God warned him and he believed God. 
He believed when God said that catastrophe was coming. He believed what God said. Um, and, and so the acts that came after that were just righteous works of someone who had already been saved, not something to earn his faith. The Bible tells us this in Hebrews chapter 11. It's very clear how Noah was saved. He wasn't saved by being a good carpenter. He was saved by faith. Hebrews eleven seven says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Moses mentions that in the Garden of Eden, it, it didn't rain, that there was a water that came up and, and brought a dew or a mist that watered the earth. And, and most people think that perhaps all the way up until the flood, it hadn't rained. Um, certainly, even if it had rained, it, it was not flooding. They hadn't seen anything like this, nor did anyone see anything like this afterward. And so Noah had to um, conceptualize in his mind, as God told him, I'm going to bring waters that cover the whole earth. And he had to trust in something that he had never seen before. He couldn't testify of. And Hebrews says he's warned of things yet unseen, yet he put his faith in God. And so Noah's faith was placed in what he could not see. That is the same way we're saved. We, I can't prove to you that a man rose from, dead, from the dead. I can't convince you with carnal arguments. But if you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, then that demands your obedience for the rest of your life. You're here this morning on a Sunday, the first day of the week, because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And, and if, if you even have an inkling that that might be true, I call you to repentance and obedience. Because if, if the supernatural happens by good and gracious God, we have no other choice but to follow him and to be obedient with our lives. And that doesn't earn us salvation. We've, we're granted salvation freely and we work as a result of it. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Conviction means to be convinced of something. And so we're convinced of something that we cannot see. That's why we all gathered today. And so Noah was righteous because God granted him faith, but then he worked for his own good that God put before him. John Calvin puts it this way, God not only loves the faithful, but also their works. And so even though works don't save us, God loves it when we do good work. God loves it when we show kindness. God loves it when we gather and worship together. God loves it when we carry out the sacraments of the church and communion and baptism. God loves it when we do those things. They bring him glory, but yet it's not by those things that we make it to heaven. It is only by God's grace. You see, Noah's good work of obedience did ultimately lead to his own safety. God ordained the means of sanctification that Noah would work in carpentry and warn people and be saved from the catastrophe. And for Noah, his good, righteous work came in the shape of an ark. Chapter 7, verse 5 says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. The word ark, if you're ever wondering why it's just not translated boat, it's because Moses, when he wrote this, didn't use the the word for boat, he used a different word. In Hebrew, it's the word teva. And, and, and it, it's a borrowed word from the Egyptian language. Um, and he probably used it because he was using, um, he was using terminology describing shipbuilding, which 
Um, a lot of people even think that Noah in his day had borrowed the technology from Egyptian technology, that, that as the Lord gave him the measurements, and they're kind of crude, and they don't tell us everything, that Noah probably hired people that, that had learned things from the Egyptians. And so Moses, as he writes about this ship being built, uses an Egyptian word to describe this massive ship, the biggest one that had ever been built. So he uses the word teva to describe Egyptian shipbuilding technology. The, other, the only other time Moses used uses the word teva, which translated ark, in, is in the book of Exodus as he describes his own origin story. Moses is adopted. Um, his mother places him in a basket um, and places him in the Nile River. And he uses to describe the basket that he's placed in, he describes it as a teva. Um, and, and really, for the, for the Hebrews, this borrowed Egyptian word came to mean vessel of safety or vessel of salvation. Most of you guys know I have a son named Teva, and we named him Teva. I always joke with him, he's named Basket. Um, but we named him Teva uh, because he's adopted, like Moses was adopted. And his salvation, when he was taken into custody and, and went into foster care, um, he was found at the end of a, a traffic accident, and he was in a car seat but not buckled in, and the car seat wasn't buckled in, and he had fallen into the floor of the car and the seat on top of him, and, and the, the seat, even though it wasn't strapped in, protected him from the catastrophe that was around him, and so we named him Vessel of Safety or Salvation. And here Moses describes his own story he uses the same word from his origin story that his parents taught him growing up. He uses it to describe the boat that Noah and his family goes into. He says it's a vessel of salvation. Verse 16, it says, Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. And there's beautiful imagery in this. That they go into this vessel of salvation, and the Lord shuts the door. The Lord seals them in thereby showing that they needed the Lord to even be safe in the first place, and they needed to trust him once they were safe. This is a beautiful picture of our salvation in that we can't save ourselves and we can't keep ourselves saved. We have to trust in the Lord. My Nana used to have a, an old Buick car, and I always thought it was so cool because to open the trunk, the Buick emblem on the back, you had to like swirl it to the side, and I thought it was like a 007 gadget. I don't know if any of you guys remember the old Buicks that had those things, but I thought it was so cool. And we were playing hide-and-seek one time, and my cousin convinced me to hide in Nana's Buick in the trunk, and <clears throat> he shut me in, and I realized once I got in, that might have been a bad decision. <laughs> back in those days, they didn't have the glow-in-the-dark handles, you know, so you can't get kidnapped. And, um, and so I'm in the back of the, the Buick, and I'm thinking, man, I really have to trust that he's going to let me back out when the game's over, right? Um, and it, this, is the, this is the state that Noah and his family finds himself in. As they, as they go into the ark and supernaturally watch God just lift this heavy door, this ramp on the side of the ark as it closes and God somehow seals it that, that to protect it from the outside catastrophic waters that would come up against it as they watch the sun fade into darkness as the door closes. They have to have full trust in the God who is sealing them in. And they place that trust, and Moses actually gives us some, some detail about that trust, and he, I think he makes allusion to several other things. I think he's building on the creation account that we see in chapters 1 and 2. There's really three things that, that Moses tells a story of being built in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Creation in Genesis 1 and 2, built by God. The ark in Genesis 6 and 7, built by Noah. And the tabernacle, built in Exodus 25 by a guy named Oliab. 
And, and these three things that are built are all uh, instructed by God, spoken into existence by him, and they, they have been built as a place of salvation and worship for mankind, as a call for man to turn away from their sin and to worship a true and holy God. Now, in the New Testament, what's beautiful about it, as you go from creation to the ark to the tabernacle, once we get on the other side of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, the New Testament church is called the tabernacle of God, the dwelling place of God, meaning that now God habitates us as his people, meaning that we have been uh, brought in, shut in, if you will, sealed in to the tabernacle of God, the ark of God, if you will. This beautiful picture of God's care and safety for us. Secondly, we see God's circumstance. Um, it, I, think, I think we oftentimes look at the story of the flood, and we think of it as like, okay, once the flood comes on day one, everything was all fine, right? Um, but that was really just the beginning of the trial. Noah now begins a year-long period living on the ark. Now, it's roughly the size of a modern cargo ship, which, if you're like me, I think it's a pretty big boat. Um, but they're, they're literally managing a zoo, right? And even if you are an animal lover, living on a boat for a year with nowhere to go and no visible land in sight and taking care of all those animals for a year sounds like a literal hell to me. It just sounds like the worst. And, and Noah also, like not just the physical demands of all the chores and all the poop and everything that comes along with that, but also the mental and emotional toil that happens of, of are we ever going to get off of this boat? Are we going to survive? Are we going to make it? You see, Noah had experienced salvation, but then he entered into an intensely trying season. Genesis seven twelve says, rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. But even though that's when the earth was exploding with water and the heavens were raining down water and all that catastrophe was happening, even once the calmness came, they still had to float for the rest of the year. And, and we see it in like Sunday school and flannel graph pictures and stuff, right? And they're coming off the boat and the giraffes and the elephants are walking down the ramp and it's just like lush, green, beautiful fields and the birds are flying and there's flowers blossoming and everything. But I've seen post-flood world, right? Like in 2016, I think it was, we had a 100-year flood, and we, we took a team down to White Sulphur Springs and cleaned up. That was the nastiest scenery I've ever seen. It was just like mud everywhere. There was not anything green, nothing. There wasn't anything that was green anymore. And, and, and so a more realistic picture would be like Noah and his family putting on muck boots and coming out, and it just being nasty everywhere. It's a horrible smell. There's dead animals everywhere. There's just so much cleanup to do. There's stuff and debris hanging from the trees. It would have just been terrible. And it would have been a very visible reminder that the, the ease and the peace of the Garden of Eden was truly gone by sin. Sin had wrecked it. Sin had made a literal muddy mess of God's creation. Yet God is glorified in the redemption of that mess. And Noah and his family and their children and their children's children begin to cultivate and begin to clean up this world. The 40 days of destruction remind us of Jesus' 40 days of temptation. We see in Mark 1, for example, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he too was with wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. And so Jesus doesn't resist 
the, the circumstance of trial and temptation. Jesus willingly steps into circumstances of temptation and trial. Jesus willingly steps away from the presence of God's comfort to endure what we fail at. He succeeds. His perfect fulfillment is promised all throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament and fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection. On Good Friday, we read through the full chapter of Isaiah chapter 53. And Isaiah, as he prophesies on behalf of the Lord in the very next chapter, looks back to Noah's day. After he says the Messiah is coming to bring freedom to all humanity, in chapter 54, the Lord speaks and says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So child of God, hear me very clearly. In whatever mess you see in front of you, however wrecked your life may look right now, God has compassion on you. He's not holding a grudge against you because of the mess that you've made. His anger was quenched at the cross as his wrath was poured out not on humanity, but on the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Mountains may depart and hills may be removed. Your whole world could come crashing down, but his covenant of peace is on you if you hope in the Savior. God remembered Noah, and he showed grace to him. Even though his life wasn't easy and his circumstances were incredibly hard, God honored him and saved him. He also gave commands to him. So the third theological point is we see God's command. God commands obedience from his children after he saves them. He just does. Once we've received grace as Christians, our obedience should be a joy for us. Once we've been saved and we've tasted and seen how, how crazy it is that God would save a jacked up sinner like me, I should yearn to want to be obedient. But oftentimes we're not. But God gives good commands to his children. In chapter 8, you see a turn as God stops from his wrath and he begins to cultivate relationship with man once again. God remembers in verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The Lord made sure that the waters subsided and that Noah was able to come out of the boat and, to, and to step safely back onto dry land. He had safely passed through the waters of catastrophe. I want to remind you of this often as we go throughout Genesis, that the best commentator and explainer of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. So if you ever come across stuff in the Old Testament that you just don't understand, the first place you look is, is this referenced in the New Testament? And the New Testament says that the flood foreshadowed our baptism. Um, we're going to celebrate baptism after the sermon today. Uh, Tylen Lunsford's going to be baptized, and, and as, as he's dunked under the water, I, he, he made a, a really nice shot when we played basketball on Wednesday. I told him I was going to hold him under for that. Um, it was right in my face. I should have blocked it. But, um, but as he goes under the water and comes up out of the water, it is a visible representation of his obedience to Christ, his profession of faith that he trusts in Jesus to give him eternal life. And the Bible says that that actually points us back to the flood. What could happen to us if we did not step into obedience is God's wrath. 
1 Peter 3.18 is where we see this explained. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so this explains the theological meaning of the flood. Passing through the water is a symbolic passing from disobedience to obedience. It's, and, and listen, it's not that baptism saves you. I think, I think it's, it's important that we make this clear that Noah didn't need to build a boat to be saved because God could have saved him supernaturally however he wanted, but God gave him away and he said you need to build a boat. Some of you guys have heard theologically accurate statements that baptism does not save you. We see the thief on the cross, not baptized, still goes to heaven. Old Testament saints, not necessarily baptized, still go to heaven, Right? But God tells us in in the new covenant that we are to be baptized. And some of you need to just submit to that and obey him. Some of you guys have neglected your baptism. You believe in the resurrection. You believe in Jesus. You've trusted him for salvation, but you're not getting baptized. That would be like Noah hearing from God. Hey, Noah, I've found favor with you and I've shown you grace. And he's like, okay, cool. And God says, build an ark. And he's like, nah, you already said I'm saved. I'm good. God told him what to do. He needed to obey it. And, and so Peter says that in the same way, baptism brings us into the church, brings us into what we're shut into and sealed into by God's grace. John Calvin continues in his commentary and references the same passage in Peter's epistle. And it says, Peter, John Calvin says this, he says, Peter teaches that Noah's deliverance from the universal deluge was a figure of baptism, as if he had said the method of the salvation which we receive through baptism agrees with this deliverance of Noah. Since at this time also the world is full of unbelievers, as it was then, therefore it's necessary for us to separate ourselves from the greater multitude that the Lord may snatch us from destruction. In the same manner, the church is fitly and justly compared to the ark. And so baptism is a picture of being sealed into the ark or the church. And so it's a beautiful picture as we celebrate baptism today that we can celebrate that God's wrath is no longer on us as we have placed our faith in Jesus. And we're saved from the damnation that will come to the world. Not so that we could be inaccessible to the world, but so that we can be saved from slipping into the same damnation of people who refuse to repent, who refuse to bow to King Jesus And now we get to beckon other people into the church, into the ark, so to speak. We get to beckon other people into the same grace that we've received. Genesis 8, 15, God uh, gives commands here. And he says, God says to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives, and bring out with you every living thing that's with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now listen to this, that they may swarm on the earth, and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Do you remember hearing this, those of you that have been coming to church for a little while? God gave this same command when he created the first humans, Adam and Eve. He told them, be fruitful and multiply. Here God repeats the same command to Noah and Noah's sons that he gave to Adam in the garden. 
He says, go forth and multiply, be fruitful. And the same command is echoed in this rebirth of creation. And guess what? The same command is echoed, spiritually speaking, when we pass through the waters and enter into Jesus' church, he tells us to be fruitful and multiply in a spiritual sense. We are to go and we're to make other disciples. We are to bring people into the family of God to see them born again, if you will. Matthew 28, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Be fruitful and multiply. You've been saved from catastrophe and damnation. Be fruitful and multiply. Tell other people of the great salvation you've received. And when it gets tough, And when you find yourself in circumstances that are trying, like Noah and his family had, just remember, as Jesus sends us, he goes with us. And when he allows trials to come into our life, he's with us in the trials to help us through them. And when we encounter hardship and we feel like we can't accomplish it, he helps us through them in his sovereign ability. Because God keeps his promises. The fourth and final point is God's covenant. You see, covenant's an important word for you to understand, especially as we go through Genesis, because um, God initiates a lot of covenants in Genesis as well as through the rest of Scripture. And covenant just means a promise or an agreement. Um, We're going to recognize covenant membership today, which is a promise and an agreement that's mutual from church member as well as the church body. We believe in marriage covenants, that we, um, man and woman, stand before witnesses and make vows to honor one another and honor the principles of marriage and scripture. They're promises that begin. And the Noahic covenant begins with God's ending of the reigns that we see in Genesis 8. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made, and he sent forth a raven. And it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Now, let me pause right there because I've I've always just wondered what happened to the raven. Maybe your brain's not as ADD as mine. But I'm like, what happened to the raven? Because there's no dry land yet, and the raven didn't come back. So what happened to the raven? I couldn't figure it out. So I just had to read a lot of books by smarter men than me this week. And, and the consensus that everyone comes to, and I can't prove this, but it's cool, is that the raven being a bird of prey found a place to land on the floating carcasses of, of animals or people around. Isn't that just the most metal thing to exist in the Bible? Um, and so the, the raven's landing on these carcasses and feeding on them and just doesn't come back. I know that's gross, but that's just ADD. I'm sorry. Verse 8. Um, then Noah sends forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot because she's a, she's a, a pretty bird, right? Like Dumb and Dumber would say. And, um, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore, indicating, of course, that there was dry land for the dove to 
to live and dwell on. Now, there's certainly some interesting things here. I've read some cool stuff. Some people say the dark raven represents sin and darkness, and it was sent out into the world, and it represents carnal flesh, so it feasted on the dead and didn't return to the safety of the ark. Conversely, the dove represents light and righteousness, and it found no home in a world ruined by wickedness and returned to the ark. Now, you could read a lot into that. Um, I, I don't think that you necessarily should, but I think there is a clear symbolism in the dove returning with the olive branch in her mouth. This has become a, a universal symbol of peace, a dove with an olive branch, um, and it comes from this story. And, and it's no accident that when the Holy Spirit is seen in the New Testament, he is compared to a dove. One example is Matthew chapter 3. It says, when Jesus was baptized, here's water again, um, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And so as the dove flies over the waters of Noah's day, the Spirit flies over the waters of Jesus' baptism day. And, and God uses a sign of this, a symbol of peace, that he, he is showing a covenant that he's entering into with Noah that he is now at peace with God. Matthew Henry commentates this way. He says, The olive branch, which was an emblem of peace, was brought not by a raven, a bird of prey, nor by a gay and proud peacock, but by a mild, patient, humble dove. You see, the symbols of Scripture are historic, but they're meant to lift our eyes to something higher. So this actually happened, but it, it's communicating to us that God brings peace to his children. All of creation is poetic, redemptive, and beautiful. And let me remind you that though the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, God's steadfast love shall not depart from you. And his covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so Noah understands that he has a covenant of peace when this happens. And he responds when he gets off of the boat in the way that any worshiper should respond when they understand that they have the peace of God. He responds in worship, and so should you. Chapter 8, verse 20, our final passage, says, Noah built an altar. You see, Noah had spent years building an ark to save himself, and he spent one day building an altar to worship. And I think it's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. He graciously lets us labor to, to bring our own income and our own sustainability. And he doesn't ask much from us. But he's pleased in our one day or a couple of days a week where we gather with believers and worship him. It's very gracious of him to interact with us in the way that he does. Yet some of us see God as overbearing or difficult. It says, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And so what we see is God's covenant is that he won't do this again. Um, he makes it clearer in chapter 9, we'll talk about next week, but God makes it plain that he will, until the end of time, be a faithful and patient sustainer of creation. And so, listen, I know in West Virginia it's hard to see because we go straight from winter to summer in like a week. It doesn't take that long. But as God even says, as you go from cold to hot, that we, that we see the, the careful planning of God and his creation. 
that as we saw rain and wind this morning, as we see sunshine hopefully this afternoon, that as uh, weather changes and seasons change, we can see in observable nature that God honors his covenant of peace with mankind. And furthermore, not just in nature, but in your own souls, if you've trusted in Jesus, you can observe the covenant of peace that he has brought to you. And it's brought not through your carpentry, thank God, right? It's brought through God's carpentry. It's, it's, not, it's not through gopher wood, it's through the wood of Calvary as Jesus goes up on Calvary's hill and stretches out his hands to die at a place that he didn't deserve, to die as a criminal. As the Father places all of your sin and guilt squarely on the one man who didn't deserve it. As he drinks in the wrath of God, he does it for those who would repent and place their trust in him. I pray that you've done that. And if you haven't done that, today is a perfect day to do that. Repent of your sin, step into the ark that we call the church, and receive the free gift of salvation from Jesus. He will grant you resurrection and eternal life, just like he demonstrated when he rose from the dead. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.